Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 50, I interview Michael Cleary and Richie Ragel, the co-founders of Milk Chocolate Property. We discuss their journey from professional sports, big corporate ad agencies, to leaving the corporate world on a passion project and turning an Italian restaurant into a wine bar. Why this led to grueling 100 plus hour work weeks for little money, but taught them fundamental business skills and principles that were priceless. How their lifelong interest in real estate and property made them finally follow their real passion and focus on property as their core business and not just a weekend hobby. How they grew 130% last financial year to, to do over $1.9 million in annual revenue. Why they have economists with PhDs on their team and why they are hiring dozens of machine learning engineers and software developers to launch their own technology platform, always focusing on what the customer wants. If you're interested in all the property services under one roof, powered by technology from strategy to buyer's agent services, construction and property management, check out milkchoc.com.au. That's M-I-L-K-C-H-O-C.com.au. So I'm here with Michael Cleary and Richie Ragel, the co-founders of Milk Chocolate Property. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So maybe we'll start with you, Michael. Can you tell us what were you doing before you started Milk Chocolate Property? What did you study? What type of companies or roles were you working in? Yeah, so probably quite different to the property industry. So I started my career, uh, I left high school and I, I didn't actually study. I left high school and went straight into the Australian advertising industry. So I worked for a number of large Australian advertising agencies. Um, I started out as, you know, essentially agency gopher, you know, where I was just running around and doing whatever needed to be done and then worked my way into what was known as a production role. So I was a producer and actually making ads. Uh, and so I, I had an 18-year career in the Australian advertising industry and, uh, you know, went from producer up to operations director of, of large multinational agencies. Uh, but then also in that time, uh, Rich and I, we actually went to high school together. So so, um, so, so grew up together. We weren't actually that good of friends in high school. We actually, uh, you know, we had we had friends that were in the same circle, but, but Rich and I weren't actually all that uh, all that close within high school. And then um, it's probably a couple of years after we left high school, I suppose, in our very early sort of around 2021, we became really good friends. And I'll, I'll let Richie talk us to, to his points as well, but we both worked in the Australian advertising industry together. Um, and then from there, we, we, we started... Uh, we, we, we bought a home and we flipped it. We both had a, a huge love and passion for property. Uh, and we also owned a wine bar for five years uh, prior to, to prior to starting the business. So 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 prior to, to, to Milk Chocolate, you know, my, my life was really, um, you know, from high school, you know, through the ranks of Australian advertising to, to wine bar owner and, and property flipper. Uh, and then, you know, we've been running Milk Chocolate as a commercial business for the last five years. Okay, and how about you, Richie? Similar path, advertising. Are you working together on that wine bar? Yeah, so, um, yeah, as Mike said, we went to the school together, but um, the initial period of my early life was a little bit different. I um, I was a personal trainer, so very much into my sports and fitness and went overseas uh, to the UK um, where I was uh, working in a gym but also playing uh, professional cricket overseas. 
um, which was really, really good experience. Uh, but when I came back, I uh, got into the advertising industry and, and that's exactly where Michael and I started working together uh, for one of the agencies uh, at that point in time. And as, as Michael touched on, it was it was there where we developed a, uh, a unique passion for, for property and real estate and, and flipping properties. So um, that's how that, that journey began. And, and with regards to the wine bar, Yes, I actually worked in, in the wine bar full time uh, as the general manager and, and, and co-owner with Michael and another business partner. So that was uh, five years of a lot of learnings, uh, a lot of mistakes, but I'm um, glad we've come through the other side and, and can put that behind us, but very much now focused on, on milk chocolate and property. And was advertising your first love? Were they just recruiting people and they were hiring and you didn't even really know about the advertising world or did you have a passion for sort of media and marketing? Um, mate, to, to be honest, I uh, my cousin worked at a, at a big advertising agency at the time, which was John Singleton's advertising agency uh, back in the day. And you know, my cousin said to me, uh, "What are you going to do when you when you leave school?" And I said, I, "I'm really not sure." And she said, "I reckon I can get you a job. Um, it's fun." And and that's literally you know that's literally where it started. And I worked for a company called Wyburn Lawrence TWA. But um, but but no, I didn't. You know, it's not. I, I didn't. Um, I didn't have a burning passion to work in sort of the media or advertising industry. I, for you know, I literally just felt into it um, and it was something that I that I really enjoyed but you know as a producer in advertising in production you're essentially bringing all of the things together so you're, you're bringing all of all of the, the different departments together to make an ad which is um, you know very similar to what we're, we're doing here at Milk Chocolate and it's a very similar uh, it's a very similar sort of ethos and process if that makes sense as well but um, but, but certainly didn't have a have a desire uh, no it, it, it sort of just happened that way but uh, but you know it's a very similar process that we find with the building and construction of property. And what about, um, talk to me about your interest in property. Was it, again, one of those passions you had as teenagers or in your early 20s, you bought properties together, bought and sold and flipped? Or was it, again, you were kind of, again, a bit bored at work and thought, hey, what's something fun we can do on the weekends? Does it make a bit of extra money? Was that, again, sort of entrepreneurial thing? Or how did, or were your parents, you know, landlords? Or how did you sort of get into the, the property space? Yeah, um, for me personally, it was... Uh, growing up with my dad, he's uh, he was very much an investor, so he was invested into to shares, managed funds, property himself. So, um, growing up, I was exposed to to investing in property and the benefits of, of property. Looking back at the types of investments that he was making, um, I wouldn't be doing those now personally, but it still gave me exposure to that. And, and from a very young age, I was I was reading all the the magazines, uh, your investment property, etc. Um, just getting my head around how it works, creating my own spreadsheets, how I was going to retire at 40 years old using property, <laughs> etc. So, uh, yeah, very much passionate about that. Um, like most people in Australia, watched a lot of property shows and lifestyle shows about property and renovating property. But, um, yeah, just that natural attraction to, to real estate and the benefits that it can provide uh, and just the ability to, to obviously also identify something that's, um, not very great in terms of the aspect or the, the sorry the, the appearance of a of a property, and turning that into something quite beautiful. So, taking a to have a bit of a creative background and a creative mind as well. Um, so it's really you bringing that passion to property to to help identify how you can add value to a property, and then obviously washing that with the economics behind it as well. So that's me personally how how I became engaged with real estate. I think for me, it's a, it's a little bit different. And, and so um, my parents didn't, uh, you know, mum and dad owned a, owned an investment property for a few years and it was, uh, 
well, you know, they were fortunate enough that it actually did work very well for them. But it was a, it was a, a spruker essentially that sold them a, a villa in in Perth, um, which you know at the time just did very well, and they 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 sold it at exactly the right time. So, um, but you know, they literally fell into it by accident. You know, from from those sorts of people that we uh, you know that we that we probably steer our clients against. Um, but it, um, it, it for me, it was about um, it was just a love of 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 I, I think um, you know just a love of of the understanding of property, if that makes sense, but a, a love of the, the the structure of it, um, you know, the things that you could do to it and so forth. So probably, I, you know, different to Richie, I certainly, um, I certainly, you know, didn't think that I was, you know, didn't have aspirations to, to buy properties and retire at 40. It was more just a love for the the, the structure and the form of the buildings and, and, uh, and, and that sort of path of it. Yeah, so, so you've both got these corporate advertising careers, Rich obviously going overseas, doing sport, doing some other things. You're interested in property. How does that turn into a wine bar? Was that a bit of a uh, fed up with the work-life balance of the advertising world, which is notorious for sort of obviously very long hours, high pressure? Was it a, a lifestyle business? Was it a, a passion project or was it just um, yeah. how did it go from corporate with a, a, a passion for property into, you know, wine bar? It certainly was. A, it was absolutely a lifestyle and, and passion project that we were wearing rose-coloured glasses. You know, when we when we when we purchased it, so we 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 had um, we were had purchased and, and flipped uh, a property. And uh, we were both living in in, uh, in an inner western suburb, just sort of you know down the street from each other. And it was very much uh, you know this this particular suburb that we're living in was Annandale at the time in Sydney's inner west. And we uh, we thought, oh, Annandale's missing a wine bar. Wouldn't it be great if Annandale had a wine bar? So. Um, I suppose you know the naivety around it, and and Richard and I don't do anything by halves. When we do something, we just we just go all in. So we ended up buying what was a, a, an Italian family restaurant. It was a terrace. It was two stories, and a, you know I think Richard will correct me, but I think it you know it, it had about a hundred hundred covers that it, you know it could it could seat a hundred people. So it was it was a big venue, and uh, you know we um, we certainly didn't go into it thinking that that would become. I still worked in advertising and would wait at night at the restaurants, and and Richie was his full time job at. At the restaurant and would wait at night, but we certainly didn't go into it thinking that um, you know we thought it would be a lifestyle business that would just be able to go to every couple of days and it would it would run itself. But it was obviously very different. Yeah, we soon realised. Um, I reckon after about two months, it's like oh shit, what have we got ourselves into? Um, and yeah, it was very much um, a passion project that we thought we could go there with our mates and hang out, have have dinners and lunches, etc., and enjoy the um, enjoy the space. But that was absolutely not the case. It was it was our first introduction to, to serious hard work, long days, no money, um, and looking after significant amounts of staff. And obviously, when you're managing a wine bar and a restaurant, the types of staff that you're looking after are, are backpackers and students. Um, so very transient um, employment place uh, so that was very hard in terms of keeping up with that they obviously don't really care if they call in sick and the consequences of that so we always have to cover the slack so it was just never ending essentially and very very happy that that time passed us yeah and i mean were the fundamentals good you had a, you know good location mm. you had enough foot traffic our customers is just a reality yeah. it's a competitive low margin industry or were there like you said things you didn't maybe plan or understand in, in like again a, a sort of a, a very casualized workforce and um you know competition or other forms of entertainment i suppose you're competing against versus you know you're yeah. not just competing against someone going to wine bar you're competing against them you know, going to a pub or staying at home or eating out or you know yeah. there was there was all those factors mm. uh, the rain and the weather is another factor mm-hmm. that you can't yeah. control as well but uh, <laughs> it was it was very much 
Um, what we what we learned quite quickly, one of the biggest lessons that we've taken across is that if you're not passionate about something, mm. don't do it. And we just weren't passionate about hospitality. We, none of us had worked in hospitality mm. besides pulling, pulling beers at a, at a pub when you're 18, et cetera. But um, outside of that, none of us had actually worked in hospitality and we weren't passionate about hospitality and the problem that we're trying to solve. And therefore, we actually ended up hating the place, which is obviously not a, a great relationship to have with the company <laughs> that you own. Um, and so outside of that, we, we knew we using our skill set and backgrounds in advertising, marketing and, and business, we knew how, how to make it work, but that the pure fundamentals of those, those forces that push against you and the fact that we just weren't passionate about it enough to care too much um, meant that it was a business that turned over, um, but it never really got to the, the heights that we're expecting it to get to. You know, we both took uh, a lot away from it in that, as Richie said, uh, lots of learnings, but you would find, uh, you know, we own that business for five years and, you know, people go and do MBAs or, or go and do further study and so forth. And we really, I mean, that was that was our that was our period of study, I really believe, because we learned so much about running business, so much about ourselves and ourselves as business people, um, you know, and, and really what it takes to, to go into this particular business. And, um, you know, so as much as as much as we, we didn't have the passion for it and, and we were very glad to be out of it we both learned so much from it and we both uh you know it was it was both our you know it's essentially our, our our formal education into into business and it's also we still have a, a list of learnings that we took from yeah. from from there and we review that every every year or even when we're making a big mm. decision in this business we review that list and go no we made that mistake beforehand we're not going to go down that path again so there's a there's a one page document that we have that we keep, and that's um, essentially a bible for us moving forward to make sure we don't repeat any of those those mistakes. And what's the top value? Like, is it the passion? Is that the number one takeaway? If you're not passionate about the problem, the customers, the product, then it's very hard to to put in the work needed. Or any other kind of key yeah. things that you review on that list every year. Um, yeah, there's some financial um, inclusions with that as well. Um, how we how we make a decision, staffing, the approach to hiring staff, etc. But the key one, as I touched on, and as you just touched on, is is just passion. Um, so if we're creating um, as our business grows and we're creating different features of the business and different verticals, we want to make sure that it's going to suit the business for one. We're passionate about that and passionate about the problem that we're solving. So. Yeah, it's, a, it's an absolutely uh, a, a great MBA that we've taken. Mm. Um, during the time, we wouldn't have thought so, but now looking back at this. And, and you stuck it out for five years. Like you said, two months in, you kind of had the, the sort of oh shit moment where you're like, this isn't what I expected. Were you on the hook for a five-year lease? Were you just trying to recoup costs? Were you thinking it will get better over time? I mean, what made you sort of stick it out from month two to, you know, the five-year mark? Yeah, we're on a three-year lease, so surprisingly, yeah, we renewed that lease and kept on going. But yeah, we, we thought we could we could turn it around. We made some significant changes. It was actually a, a restaurant, a family restaurant, um, but we turned that into a, a wine bar. Um, so a fairly significant change, and we really thought we could get through and see it to the other side. But um, yeah, eventually we we recognised that if we're not going to commit um, ourselves to this business and for the long term. Then we just need to pull in now, so we made that decision. And and property was always our passion, even as we were, we owned the restaurant. We were still, you know, in in amongst all of that, Rich and I were still going to open homes as as often as possible. We were still, you know, keeping ourselves really sort of, you know, just interested in across property. We were we were, you know, working in that, you know, or, or, or sort of that was a, a passion as well. So we really wanted to be able to, you know, move an exit from the restaurant to really concentrate on our on our passion, which was, which was property. And then so you finally have the realisation, you're like, we love property. Why are we kidding ourselves with the wine bar, the, the corporate careers in the uh, ad world? 
how did you decide to start to obviously, you know, tie a bow in the wine bar, close that and move on and to start uh, milk chocolate property? What, uh, despite being interested in property for a long time, how did you finally have that moment where you realised you're going to start a property-based business? Yeah, like, like we, we, we had an idea for this business dating back to, to 2010. There's still a business plan written um, all the way back to 2010. And um, that was always what Michael and I would do on the weekends. We'd revisit those business plans. We'd catch up every weekend and talk about how we're going to change the world and, and how we're going to um, emerge ourselves into the, into the property space. Um, and so that was always our driving factor and it's what we wanted to get ourselves to. So it wasn't hard for us to, to make that change. It was something that was always simmering in the background. Mm-hmm. We were still flipping properties at that point in time as well, um, so we had a had a lot going on. But um, it was it was always the driving force and the driving factor for us to. Well, that was always the end goal was to, for property to start our own business in property. And the idea initially was to to flip properties mm. um, for ourselves, and that's essentially how the business um, commenced. When we had a, a friend who was living overseas as an Australian expat in Dubai, he wanted to buy an investment property, and he reached out to us and said, "Can you guys assist?" With me in buying an investment property so you guys are flipping properties and it looks pretty cool um so yeah sure why not we built a website for him presented some properties to him and took him through the research and the diligence and the data around that um essentially he said i'll pay i'll pay you um for your time and your services to do that and we're like oh wow someone's actually going to pay us money to do this um and that's essentially how the how the business is formed off the back of that yeah, and I think we always just knew that there was, I mean, you know, that, that and you probably hear this a lot from different people that you're, you're talking with that are in the property space, that there's a fundamental need to, to shake up the real estate and construction industries in Australia. And our, our business is, is very different in that we're not just buyers agents. Um, we have sort of four distinct verticals being uh, the, the planning of, of, of property, uh, then the, the purchasing teams, uh, construction teams as well, and then also property management. So we're really looking after all facets of the property industry. And we, you know, they are uh, industries that construction and real estate are industries that, that, that haven't sort of moved, you know, very quickly uh, into the digital Age. And um, although there are startups now that are that are coming along and um, and 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 looking at, at at those different verticals as well, but um, you know from the very beginning we we knew that the Australian property industry really needed a bit of a shake up as well. And so, what was the first twelve months like of Milk Chocolate Property? Like you've run a business before, you've been in the, the business world, so you're not brand new. But was it as easy as you thought? Now that you were following your passion, or did you think we're following our passion? But here, tw- here are twenty problems we hadn't planned on, or again. A new industry, obviously, new learnings. What was that first 12 months like? Easier, harder than expected? Any sort of takeaways? It's always harder than you think. I mean, it's the naivety that you go into it. <laughs> if you if you knew um, if you if you thought it was uh, you know if you knew how hard it was, you know, it's it's obviously incredibly hard. And, and in all honesty, there's nothing easy about it at all. I mean, we uh, we had to you know build a business from from scratch with with no um, you know we we were we were buying and renovating properties for clients, and we'd come from sort of advertising and wine bars, but you know. Um, we're, we're, we're essentially signing new clients because they could see the passion that that we had, um, and we, uh, you know, so so yeah, I think um, yeah, yeah, expect- yeah, it's um, it's all yes, Michael said it's always it's always difficult that first twelve months, but you know, we 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 went in there with open eyes. It wasn't like we hadn't started a business before, mm-hmm. so we had that comfort that it's something that we could do. But we we're very much committed, and I think working in, in the wine bar really um, established how how thick skin for for long hours and and rejection as well um so you know starting a new business you need to 
um, create leads, et cetera, build that pipeline. But there's obviously a lot of no's in the very instance, but it's just continued to get up and keep on going, which which we got that drive from through through the uh, Weimar um, and working so hard. We've you know, been esteemed to working 100 hours a week um, for, for five years. So it was something that wasn't... Um, wasn't hard for us. We knew we had the work work ethic, and we just had to keep keep chipping away. But the first twelve months was was slow. But every win, you really really celebrated. Mm. You enjoyed it because it, um, you know, people were starting to believe in the product and the business, which is exciting to see that sort of come to fruition. And um, when they refer you to another client, you can see the business starting to grow before your eyes, which is the exciting part. So that as that's happening in that 12, first 12 months time, um, it's easy to, to see past those rejections and it's easy to look at the future and, and continue on that path, which is the exciting part. You hear some people say, follow your passions and other people say, you know, keep your passions, your passions and don't turn them into a job or a business because then you know, maybe you love buying property for yourself and, you know, you're the decision maker, but then when you're acting on behalf of a client, maybe they don't always follow your advice or, you know, it's hard and, did it, you know, or over these years, has, has your passion for property waned at all when, again, you're doing it all day, every day, or is it only sort of increased and solidified as you've um, been full-time in the property space? Yeah, for me, personally, it doesn't feel like a job, which for me, it reassures me that's the right thing. Um, it doesn't feel like it's work coming in here every day because we just love property and real estate so much. And all the facets that we're involved with, as Michael touched on, there's the research, planning and strategy side of, of real estate and property. There's the purchasing, so identifying the right assets to suit our clients' needs. Um, construction, which we're both very passionate about, so bringing something to life, either renovating it or creating something brand new and, and managing those properties. So there's so much diversity in the business that keeps it exciting and it helps you remain passionate about that. Plus, which I'm sure we'll get to later around the, the technology and the software that we're building to, to help um, bring this to life as well and, and make it a little bit more efficient for us, but also for the consumers. Mm-hmm. I'd have to uh, echo Richie's sentiments as well. I mean, I uh, you have such a passion and it, as, as Richie said, it, it doesn't at all feel like work. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it would be very different. In, in you'd have you have to have a passion to, I believe anyway, you have to have a passion to solve the problems um, and a passion for what you're doing as a startup founder because the it's it's unrelenting and you 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 give up everything for this, you know. So it's um you you have to have that passion. Otherwise, I just don't see how you could how you could how you could do it otherwise. Yeah, and so after the initial grind, and again that that sort of hard hardest part of sort of getting started, you know, you grew 130 percent last financial year, increasing annual revenue to over 1.9 million, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So after that initial phase, what was that like? That rapid growth was this? Was it just momentum, like you said, referrals of referrals? Was it something new that you did in your positioning, your services that allowed that sort of rapid growth? And then what was that process like of managing? In again, it's a physical product, physical service, managing that sort of rapid growth. Yeah, it's a good point you raise around the management of that. Um, something you can easily sort of oversee, um, like the numbers look good on paper, as you just suggested, but the, the process to get to that point and the ongoing management of all the staff and, and keeping everyone motivated and continuing on that path is, is the hardest part. But um, the success of last year definitely didn't happen overnight. Um, as we touched on, the foundation was laid about five years ago um, when we first sat on out on this adventure, which is which is really important. Or a bit, but even you know when we started, yeah, in 2010, back in yeah. 2010, we we're all sitting in mm-hmm. boardrooms, workshopping different ideas. But um, the the key to it has been um, being disciplined and consistent with our approach to business um, and the problem that we're solving. So 
we do know what we're trying to achieve and what that end goal is, and it's just keeping that um, that focus in mind and keeping that um, keeping on that steely path towards that is really really important. Um, but how we've got to that point is, you know, we've had a constant presence in the Australian expat market, which has been really really key for us, um, and we've continually delivered amazing results for our clients and our Australian expat clients living overseas. They have a, a tight network, um, no matter which way or which country or region they are in. So you've got Singapore, Hong Kong and UAE, which are the key markets, and their networks are really tight. So if you do a really, really good job, um, the, the, the word does spread quite well, um, and we've built the business off the back of that particular market. So that's sort of come to fruition, but as we've been building the business, uh, we've been adding the verticals and the construction verticals of business is, is definitely paramount and key to, to the growth of the last 12 to 24 months. And it's what we call milk chocolate projects, which is our construction arm. Um, we carry a builder's license in most states um, as well. 40% of our clients who purchase a property uh, will renovate that house, which will be in the form of cosmetic or a structural renovation, um, or alternatively a knockdown rebuild or subdivision as well. Um, and it's definitely turned into one of our key pillars moving forward. It's, it's a conduit of all of our pillars as well. Um, it's often the conduit between the purchasing and property management side of things as well, um, and also the ongoing maintenance as well with our, with our clients. So that has been a really big contributor to, to the growth in the last financial year. And we we're really excited to develop that as well. And what is exciting is all the revenue that's generated from that vertical is all organic off the existing clients. And that pipeline that's been built from clients that come to us for strategy and planning and purchasing um, filter into, into the construction vertical. So we haven't actually actively gone out to the market and advertised it as a standalone service, which is obviously something that we would be looking to do in the future, but we're not quite there yet. But that's the exciting part about where we are at the moment and, and obviously how that affects the revenue is, is going to be really important in the future. And um, you, you've mentioned a few times being really obsessively focused on the problem that you're solving for your clients. Like you mentioned expats, obviously helping them invest, I imagine, remotely uh, when they're not in Australia, but still they want to benefit from um, the real estate industry in Australia. It sounds like another aspect is that vertical integration where people aren't having to find five different suppliers to source, you know, uh, build, renovate, sell, manage, invest, all those sort of things. Are there any other ways? How would you sum up in a sentence or two the key problem that keeps you and your team focused that this is what we're solving for our clients and this is why they come to us compared to all the other alternatives? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's that, um, you know, that, that, we're, that we're offering all of those services, um, you know, under one roof essentially. So, basically, it's it's being able to give them everything that they need uh, within one business. And essentially, you know, through that as well, there's limited points of contact where, where you know, from the time a client briefs us to the time a tenant's moving to their home or their home's being renovated and the tenant's moving in or, or they're moving it to it themselves. It's, it's one company that's looking after everything seamlessly for them. Our costing structures are all very um, are all very the same within those different verticals of the business as well. So um, it's 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 really just you know what can be very complex and very messy in the purchase of a property and in the construction of property as well. We're really really simplifying that process and also digitizing the process as well. Which Richie can um, you know it's probably a good opportunity now for Richie just to talk through another big uh, complex issue that we're solving is the digitization of of the of, of the purchase and construction process and, and also the research as well as of property. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. And as, as you say, so you know the reason why people come to us is because if you're looking to buy an investment property, you need to firstly finance and you need to understand what that looks like. Am I going to grow a portfolio, how that plays out, um, the, the, the planning and the obviously identifying where you're going to buy that particular property, then going out and buying that property and then adding value and then managing that property. So 
Um, as we know, the, the industry is, is, is archaic, although prop tech you know, is, is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. There's a lot of players coming into the market. But what we are seeing is quite fragmented still in terms of where that disruption is happening. And, and what we're really trying to focus on is, is, is owning that whole supply chain. And so ensuring that if someone wants to transact in property um, in one of those key verticals that they know they can do that at Milk Chocolate um, because we, we tick all of those boxes. Um, we will be looking at financing in the future as well mm. and conveyancing, but for the time being, it's planning, strategy, research, purchase, construction and management under the one roof. So um, that is, that's really key for us. Um, we are building a proprietary software tool that Mike was just touched on, so which essentially will connect those property dots effectively, um, which will enable us to liquidise the property transaction, which is really, really exciting and what we're really building towards in the future. Um, and what we've been doing today is very much a, a manual process. So, um, you know, it's all very manual in terms of how we go about the planning, the purchasing, the renovating and management. But doing that for a long, significant period of time, we know where software can, can help and aid in the, the benefit of firstly creating business efficiencies, um, but secondly creating a really beautiful user experience as well from the other side. So um, that's what we're focusing uh, on at the moment and our engineering teams are developing the tools that will build um, those property plans that we've been talking about. So at the moment we, we create game plans for our clients, which essentially is a client will provide an input to us, which would be, hey, I've got $200,000. I can contribute $1,000 a month to my plan and in 20 years' time, I'd like to retire on my passive income from property. Uh, we essentially put together those plans for those clients using property only. So we can say to them, yep, if you were to purchase three properties at this period of time for these prices, renovate this, hold this, put this on the short-term market, for instance, by 20 years' time, you'll be able to achieve your goal. Um, that is, um, that's completed by a qualified property investment advisors at the moment, but we are using machine learning tool and, and complex algorithms to complete that task in a much more efficient manner and using trillions of permutations to provide the, the most optimised output as well. So um, at the moment, it takes about three days to write one plan, but where we want to get to is that those plans be written in about five seconds. So um, really, really exciting by that. That's um, towards the pointy end of, of being complete, but obviously a lot of rigorous testing needs to happen. And obviously that can be further built and benefited and grown in the future as well. So that's really, really exciting. Um, we, we have thousands of data inputs that helps us, um, well, that's going to help us create a tool that's going to help us value and score a property based on how we as buyers agents appraise and score a property for our particular clients. So Again, using what we do in a manual process, but using smart technology to expedite that process is really key. Um, and we also have. Well, what are some of those data inputs? Like, like I said, so I imagine so the manual process where someone says, "Oh, the schools are good in this area, the job growth is good, um, the average prices yeah. have been trending upwards." It hasn't got any X, Y, Z that might detract from the property. Is it just aggregating, like I said, all those data inputs? Any other sort of inputs that it? Um, you know, aggregates in to try and, like you said, kind of automate that sort of more manual um, style process? Yeah, yeah there's, there's two forms and two ways we're, we're approaching it. One is actually the identification of the, the region and the suburb. So we're building a machine learning tool that's uh, using data dating back to 1980 um, to help us identify how a, a capital city and or a suburb is going to um, project in the future based on those algorithms that we've created and using machine learning. That's in testing at the moment, starting to see some really, really good results. That takes into account about uh, 45 different um, indicators, and that can be from infrastructure, vacancy rates, percentage of owner-occupiers in a particular area, volume of sales, days on market, et cetera. But the machine learning tool identifies what is actually 
um, what's the key correlation um, between an indicator and the effect on capital growth. And you'll be surprised to, to know that not every data point has a direct correlation to capital growth. So we're utilising that, that skill set and that technology to help us. And then with regards to scoring and appraising a property, there's multiple inputs that we use and it's it comes down to um, its distance, walking distance, for instance, to local amenities, train stations, schools, um, the, the school scores in those particular areas, um, the topography of the land, the zoning of that particular land, the, the building quality of that particular property. Um, there, there's multiple multiple indicators. And we're, I think from the last count, there's about 88 different inputs that we use at the moment to, to look at a score and how we how we appraise and, and provide a score for a property. Um, but it's using machine learning again to, to, to cultivate all those data points and provide us with an ultimate score as well for each property that we're putting forward. So that's that's really, really exciting. Um, and there's there's a host of other um, examples that I could that I could talk to or talk all day about with regards to how we're using machine learning and um, and other um, key technologies to, to create um, you know benefits in for, for real estate and obviously the ultimately you know looking to disrupt the industry using these these key, key skill sets. So um, it's very exciting. Um, it's and, and it's also important to note that I've talked about a lot about machine learning, but we obviously have the subject matter experts. Mm -hmm in-house as well that that help um, with those particular tasks because you can't just create an algorithm or write some code and then off you go and it's it's done um, for instance that that tool that i just talked about in terms of identifying you know future suburbs with cap growth and, and cities and how they're going to grow in the future um, you know we use um, our senior economist dr kevin Hong, um, who's a doctorate he's got a doctorate degree in economics and econometrics and statistics He's the one that's you know championing the project with our ML team. He's creating the algorithms. He's identifying the right indicators, providing significant weights on each of those indicators to help the guys understand this is what we need to be looking at, etc. So it's important to to wash you know the the engineers with those those subject matter experts and their skill sets to, to provide a really good outcome for us. And you mentioned um, like obviously it's a big area of what you do. But it's not again intuitively what someone would expect. You're interested in real estate, but suddenly you bring a real tech sort of bent to it. Is it that you thought again, like you said, there's a lot of rules of thumb that people sort of follow, and you say, well, the data doesn't actually back that, and, and so there are these inefficiently priced properties where things are being overpriced, but in reality, it's not there. Or things are being underpriced, there's big opportunities. How did this sort of tech-based influence, um, or was it something again from your ad tech sort of days? You're always interested in tech, or um, you know, what, what sort of pushed you in this direction? Or is it, again, just, again, a, a point of difference to add more value where you became very sort of tech and data-focused? Yeah, I think it was um, yeah, the, the beauty of coming from a different background yeah. and a different industry is, is what's helped us. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of industry disruptors and, and prop tech companies, not all of them, some, most of them, um, are uh, created by people who have been working in real estate for a longer period of time. So they are they have a significant they have a, a way of thinking. Um, but coming from a different background from advertising and marketing, where you, you're taught to be creative and think about the consumer first, um, is the way that we've approached using technology for us. So the technology that we're creating is benefiting the consumer. It's not benefiting us um, directly. It's a benefit to the consumer to help them make the right decisions. And I think we get that from our, our old mm. um, work life coming from advertising and marketing. And that's that's how we've mm. introduced that into this particular space. And it, it always, I mean, we, we always wanted the, or well, not wanted, the, the, the idea for the business always was that it was going to be a tech-first business. And exactly as Richie said, not to not to rehash what he just said, but, but making sure that, you know, we're, we're building 
a, a business that has incredible efficiencies that really is in support of the consumer and what they're doing in the property space. And as consumers, uh, that was that real difference. Yeah, and so if we step back a bit um, from real estate specifically, looking more broadly at entrepreneurship in Australia, you know, you've lived overseas. I imagine you've had you're dealing with expat clients, and you probably hear how things are where they are, and you know, just watching different markets and technology, and and sort of because obviously there's a lot of property tech all over the world. What do you think most entrepreneurs in Australia are doing well, and where are they sort of maybe a beat behind, or where are they leaving room for improvement? I suppose, yeah, I mean, we would take the view that, um, I mean, you know, Australians, Australians have always been known as as the underdog, I suppose. And and what sort of, um, you know, what we see is that um, I, I suppose in the Australian startup and entrepreneur space is that um, sort of always been known as the underdogs. But we see, you know, the founders that we know, there's such a fight and passion of startup founders and entrepreneurs in Australia at the moment, which is it's it's a really exciting time in Australia, I personally believe, for, for startup founders and for businesses. I mean, there's incredible talent in this country, um, you know, people that are building incredible businesses across really different and varied sectors. Um, you know, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the growth of category category businesses like you, um, Milk Run, Koala, um, and it's really exciting. Uh, I think a really exciting time to, to, to be in the uh, in the startup space. And I think we're also seeing investors take Australian startups and founders more seriously as well. I mean, as we can see the flow of money coming into Australia at the moment, um, you know, even just over the last few days, just the the, the, the sorts of, um, you know, different series or different rounds that, um, that have been closed out and, and new valuations. But it's an incredibly exciting time, and I think um, I think Australia is really sort of upping the ante in that in that startup space, and it's really now uh, you know it's it's really now um, you know sort of challenging the rest of the world, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose in my my opinion as well, it's very much echoing what Mike was just said, and I, I think um, entrepreneurship now is a path that's not frowned upon. Um, if back in the day, it was something that you know it was frowned upon. Mm-hmm. It's like no, you should go work at a bank, and that's mm-hmm. what my mum always used to try and tell me to do. <laughs> Go work at a bank, stay there until you're 65 and retire, and you have a lot of super. Um, but I think now that that is absolutely shifting, and that mindset and the, the Aussie attitude to, to have a go uh, is really coming through at the moment, which is really, really exciting to see. And as Mike touched on, uh, VCs are now investing more and more into Australian startups, which is which is exciting. And, and they're doing that because there's a lot of talent here as well, which is which is good. And um, a good example of that is uh, recently when we, we hired a, a graduate machine learning engineer to, to help build through our team. Um, we, we put an ad up um, for that particular role just on LinkedIn, and within seven days we had 295 applicants. So we're quite amazed at, at how many applicants for that particular role came through, and it just shows you that you know, there's more and more millennials are upskilling. There's a lot more, um, you know, lot, there's going to be a lot more demand for Australian startups, and we're going to be creating some really amazing products here in Australia, um, which, is, which is exciting, and obviously the VCs um, can see that as well. Yeah, and, and so if there's someone listening who's sort of maybe 18 to 21 years old, they're interested in property, maybe other things you talk about, financial freedom, business, tech, or even your younger selves, right, who weren't exactly sure what you wanted to do and were just kind of open-minded to, to what other people would suggest, what advice would you give someone at that exact point in their life now who's sort of, again, curious, interested, but doesn't exactly know where to go? Yeah, it's... Um... It's a good question. It's um, for me. There's a couple. So uh, dreams without goals are just dreams. So uh, one of the key things that I'll tell myself uh, when I was 18 will be to set goals and get yourself into great habits and be disciplined and consistent with everything that you do because it will pay off. And it took me a while to understand that 
Um, being consistent and disciplined is, is really, really going to help in the long run. Um, be prepared to sacrifice everything. Um, I'm sure that's not the first time you'd have heard that, but um, be prepared to live with no money. Um, know that the majority of your friends and uh, are buying houses and, and are starting families and well in advance of what you will be, but that's mm. okay as well. Your time will come. Um, and embrace failure. Don't fear it is the other one for me. And um, the only person who never makes a mistake is someone who does nothing. Um, and that's that's really really key for for me. Um, looking back, would be I was very very scared of failure, and so everything you're doing was trying not to fail. But mm. failing's okay, and as long as you keep on moving forward and learning from those mistakes, it's it's okay. So that will be the key ones for me. Yeah, incredibly similar. I mean, you know that. Um, that, that you really have to commit your life to it. You have to commit your life to the to the passion and to the problem that you're trying to solve. And there's really no in-between. You're either all in or you're all out, all, all out basically. I mean, and, and that's the way that, you know, it would have to be. As Richie said, you know, be prepared to fail, but you've just got to be able to dust yourself off, you know, get up and 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 keep on going. Because if you do have those goals, that then it will happen. And, you know, and that's what we're seeing, that we're, we're starting to hit those milestones, which is awesome. And that there's no overnight success, no matter what you read, um, no matter, you know, what you might, think or, or how you might think um you know a startup has turned into an enterprise business you can pretty much guarantee that it has not happened overnight that those founders have been mm. working away for many years to get to that point um you know i mean if you look at, at, at richie and i as richie mentioned although you know this business has been a commercial business for five years we started planning this in 2010 mm. um and so you know that's uh, it's it's been a long time of, of planning and us getting to this point so um it is just uh yeah just 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 those sorts of points yeah, and, and what does the next five to ten years look like for milk chocolate property? Would you license your technology to a big bank, a big sort of um, underwriter? Would you, again, scale out the, the range of clients you service, the more sort of markets? Would you, you know, uh, buy and invest in other markets on behalf of clients using the same sort of fundamentals and analysis? Um, all of the above? What, what are the different sort of medium to long-term um, goals, visions uh, that you have for that company? You pick them all. Basically, everything you said is, is half of the plan in the future. So 2022, firstly, um, is where we are at the moment. And it's an exciting challenge for us come 2022 because we are going to complete the, the MVP of the product that we have been building for, for over a couple of years now. So the aim is by 30 June to have a, a product in place that we can start the piloting of and using the, the, six, uh, the, the second six months of, of this year to, to pilot that, test it, reiterate, um, and, you know, get as many clients on that as possible and staff using the, the tool to make sure that we're comfortable with that. With the aim to then launch the product properly in 2023. So um, it's a big year for us. Um, off the back of that, we, we, we do need to hire. So we have penciled 14 new hires for 2022, um, which is uh, back in the day, that would have been something that would have scared us. But now it's it's okay um, to, to do that. And, and some of those hires include a, a head of research and strategy, which mm-hmm. is a really, really important role for us. So someone that's going to come in and oversee the current economics and machine learning teams. Um, working with them to create world-class data insights as well and obviously a lot of the, the products that we're building and a lot of those tools that we're building um, creating uh, sorry providing economic insights uh, relevant to the Australian property market and being a thought leader in the Australian property space as well that's exciting for us um, you know another five additions to the tech team um, so that's front-end and back-end engineers and machine learning engineers um, obviously, off the back of that, we need to be able to advertise and grow the business. Um, mm. So growth and marketing has got a really pivotal 
point uh, part to play in this particular path. Um, so got three highs pinpointed there and then also another five operational highs, obviously, just to help us execute um, across all of those channels. But um, that's this year, 2023 and beyond is, is essentially as you touched on. So it's all about growing our client base locally, um, continuing to iterate on the product uh, and entering into new markets globally. So we have talked about all those, those ideas around licensing the product. Um, becoming a SaaS platform, um, a, a platform where users can subscribe to the services without the need for milk chocolate to assist is all part mm-hmm. of what we've been talking about. Um, and again, as you touched on, picking up this product and putting it into different markets overseas and rolling it out across those markets, especially some of those more emerging markets in Southeast Asia, such as Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot uh, a lot on the cards, a lot, to, a, lot, a lot of things to do. I feel a bit sleepy thinking about that. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's exciting. It's definitely an exciting part of um, the, the milk chocolate and, and where we are at the moment, but the future looks good. Yeah. Any final closing thoughts from each of you about business, life, the future? I would just, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's in, in summary, I mean, it's a really exciting time to, to, to be, you know, a founder in Australia. Um, we're on an incredibly exciting journey at the moment. We're in a really exciting part of the business. And, um, uh, you know, yeah, just, just really looking forward to, uh, really looking forward to everything that, that sort of keeps on coming our way personally. Yeah, and for me, it would be if anyone's listening who wants, who's got an idea, just just have a crack, yeah. just have a go and and try it. Um, the worst thing that can happen is it fails, um, and you move on and pick yourself up and go again. But that that would be my advice to yeah. anyone that's listening as well. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Richie. Really appreciate it. No worries. No worries at all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.